Welcome Keystone, both near and far, whether you are in the auditorium with us today, sitting at home in your family room, out in your cottage, or out by the beach. We're just glad you're with us today as we continue our study in the parables. Now, Jesus told stories. In fact, I think Jesus was a great storyteller. He had the ability to weave these stories into everyday life and circumstances that made people think hard, ask questions, and begin to understand some of the concepts that he was trying to impart when he would be teaching to the people of his time. He was a great storyteller. They catch our imagination. But sometimes they also leave us a little mystified, which is really part of the reason we're spending all this time studying some of these parables, because sometimes they really leave us scratching our heads saying, I don't get that. And my guess is if you've read the parables that we're looking at today, you may have also thought, I don't get that. Well, hopefully by the time we're done, you'll have a better understanding of what we're talking about. So Jesus told stories and they're called parables. So let's think for a minute, what's the definition of a parable? I looked it up in the dictionary. Remember those? Remember, we didn't just speak it into the phone and say, how do you spell this or how, what does this mean? I actually looked into a paper dictionary. I still have one. It's now going to the Smithsonian as a relic. But this is what the dictionary says about a parable. It's a simple story used to illustrate a moral or spiritual lesson. Okay, that's good. I, I get that. Now, I was raised in the church. I went to Sunday school from the time I was, and I really was, just short ones. I, I went to Sunday school from then on. And I don't remember most of the stuff they taught us in Sunday school. I'll bet you don't either. But I do remember what they told us was the definition of a parable. And this is it. It is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Anybody else get that? I mean, did you? You didn't go to Sunday school? Okay, we've got a couple here. All right, good. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's the idea that Jesus took everyday common pieces of life to teach us about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Because that's what a lot of these parables begin with. The kingdom of heaven is like or the kingdom of God is like. But not all of them begin that way. Now, truth is, the parables we're looking at today didn't begin with that introduction. Jesus was teaching something a little different in these particular parables. And it'll be interesting to see what he has to say to us. I love a good story. I love a good storyteller. One of my favorite storytellers of all time is Garrison Keillor. And if you've ever heard of Garrison Keillor, you know about Lake Wobegon, Minnesota. It's a wonderful series of stories that he would just unfold weekly on his radio program. And, and I would love listening to him because I would begin to get pictures in my mind of the people of Lake Wobegon and the village of Lake Wobegon. Then one time, Betty Jo and I had the opportunity to go and see him do his radio program live in person in Chicago. And I watched him as he began to un unpack the story for that particular day. And it's like he went there in his head. He saw it all, and I could see it because he was such a good storyteller. A good story will put pictures in your mind and help you begin to see things that the storyteller wants you to begin to see and understand. Jesus did that with his parables. So let me tell you a little story. Because as I'm preparing for today, 
I'm realizing that it is just about five years to the day that Betty Jo and I first walked into Keystone, five years ago. And I remember that first Sunday when we walked through the doors and we were, we were surprised because the first thing we noticed was popcorn. I've, I've been to church a lot over the years. Never have I walked in and been given popcorn on my way in. That was surprising. Now, as we came in, I have to acknowledge, I have to be honest and tell you that nobody talked to us. We were strangers. We didn't know anyone here. They didn't know us. We weren't particularly surprised. It was just the way it was. Nobody talked to us. We came in. We walked past the popcorn, decided we'll pass on that, sat down, waited for the service to begin. And then we were pretty curious because the first song that the band started with that morning was a Beatles tune. And I'm thinking, okay, what... Popcorn and Beatles? We better go check the sign. Did we come into the right place? Is this really church? But after the Beatles tune, they shifted into some, some uh, Christian songs and thought, okay, all right, we can do this. We're okay. And then came the most, the most amazing part of that first Sunday's experience. It's called intermission. Now, some of you have been around Keystone for a while, and and we haven't had intermission for a while. We, we are going to bring it back. So those of you who are panicking, don't worry, it's coming back. But the custom at Keystone is that after we've had the worship music, there's this five-minute intermission before the teaching begins. And just like I'd never been in a church that served popcorn or that began with a Beatles tune, I'd never been in a church that had intermission. And so there we sat. Well, everybody kind of got up and talked to other people. Nobody talked to us. I mean, somebody must have written something unfortunate on my forehead because nobody wanted to talk to us. So there we sat wondering, what in the world have we gotten ourselves into? But the teaching was pretty good. And so at the end of the service, we walked out through the gathering space, untouched by human hands, I might add. Nobody talked to us. And we walked away and said, well, that was interesting. Think we ought to go back? And we've been back ever since. So what is it that brought us back? It wasn't the instant sense of community because there wasn't any for us in that particular first Sunday. It wasn't the popcorn because we still really don't eat the popcorn. It was partly the teaching. It was partly the music. But really, when we dug in a little deeper to Keystone and what Keystone is and what Keystone believes, it was this statement that really drew us in. Keystone exists to help people find and follow Jesus. And we said, if they're really serious about that, we would love to be a part of a church that is really serious about helping people find and follow Jesus. For Virtually all of our married lives, Betty Jo and I have been deeply invested into that very kind of action, helping people find and follow Jesus. By the way, I want to give a shout out to Betty Jo. You see, when I talk about all of our married lives, a week ago, we celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary. Wow. That's pretty cool. Thank you for hanging in there with me. Thank you for life and love and laughter and for adventure. 
and for 50 years of shared ministry together. It's been great. Looking forward to the next 50? <laughs> we've, been, we've been heavily invested into all this process of helping people find and follow Jesus because we want people to know forgiveness and new beginnings in Jesus. We want them to grow deep and strong, rooted in him, so that when life happens, as it invariably happens around us, you have the resources to make your way through that with his strength and with his grace and with his help. Which brings us to the parables for today. Because really when we look at them, there's gonna be two of them that kind of weave together into one. Now, I want to give you the context for it, because otherwise these parables make even less sense than they do when you read them anyway. Jesus is up in Galilee, and I've got a map here that I want us to look at for a moment. Galilee is the region up to the north. This is really where Jesus comes from. He was Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth is one of the towns up in Galilee. It's around the Sea of Galilee. He's probably on the shore somewhere around Capernaum, uh, Bethsaida, somewhere up in there as best we can tell. Now, I also want you to notice on this map, Jerusalem is way down here, all the way down there. There's a lot of distance between Jerusalem and the Sea of Galilee. But as we're about to find out, while there may have been a geographical difference, a distance rather, between Jerusalem and Galilee, the influence of Jerusalem is strong and pervasive. And that's where the trouble begins. Jesus, up in this region, has just healed the leper of his leprosy. And maybe you remember the story of, of them bringing a paralyzed man to Jesus, and they couldn't get into the house because it was so full. They, they opened up the roof and dropped him down. Or didn't drop him down. They let him down. Not like they pushed him over the edge and said, good luck. <laughs> they let him down. And Jesus did two things. One is... He first forgave the guy of his sins, and then he healed him of his paralysis. And the religious leaders are going around going, wait a minute, did he just forgive his sins? He can't do that, only God can do that. So Jesus is kind of on their short list of people we don't like. And we pick up the story at that point. This is what Luke writes. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. And, and just a word as we, as we dig into this. Tax collectors were among the most despised, hated people of their time. The system worked like this. You would go to the Roman government and say, for this region, what kind of money do you expect to get from taxes? And they would give an amount. And then you would make a bid and say, well, I bid this amount. You would take what they want plus whatever you think you can get on top of that. And the highest bidder would get that particular region to collect taxes. Now, as you can imagine, that opens the door to all kinds of extortion and corruptness and just flat out stealing from people. So tax collectors were not liked at all. Add to that the fact that this particular tax collector has the name of Levi. Levi is a Hebrew name, which means that Levi was a Jew who sold out to the Roman occupation and is now collecting money from his fellow Jews to give to the Romans. 
Not only did they hate tax collectors in general, in fact, oftentimes you read in scripture that they're, they're lumped up with, well, they're talked about this way, tax collectors and sinners, tax collectors and sinners, tax collectors and sinners. They were a special category of sinner. They weren't just sinners, they were tax collectors, sinners. But Levi has now gone against his own people. He was doubly despised. So Jesus is walking along, sees a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth, and he says to him, follow me. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Think about that for a moment. Levi, one of the most despised people in the whole region, and Jesus says, follow me. That's encouraging. Because I don't know where you are in your journey with Jesus. If you're coming toward him, if you maybe started to walk away from him because you don't think you can make it with him. Maybe, maybe you're finding that, well, if I clean up my act first, if I, if I were a better person, he would accept me. But this tells me very much a different story. This tells us that you come to Jesus as you are. He takes you as you are. He receives you as you are. He didn't say to Levi, Levi, you go up and clean up your business first and be a little more kind to the people and then maybe you can follow me. He just said, follow me. Come with me. Be with me. So wherever you are, Jesus says, come to me. Even as a broken person, as a messed up person with, with a history, Jesus doesn't say, I'm, I'm, Jesus says to us this, I am far less concerned with where you've been than where I want to take you. What you are is not nearly as important as what you're going to be with me. So if you think that you're not good enough for him, if you need to clean yourself up first, don't bother. Just come to him as you are. He says, follow me, and he invites you to come. So here's Levi. He now has this challenge in front of him. And I love the, we can run back to that text just for a second. I, I, I love the specificity of Luke here. Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. This is not a half-hearted acceptance of the invitation. This is not some weak commitment on his part. There's a decisive break with the old way of life and an embracing of a Jesus-first commitment in his life going forward. And that begins to give us a glimpse of what it means to follow Jesus. This break with the old way of life and this Jesus-first commitment to a new way of life. Well, soon after all of this, Levi throws a big party because he's so excited about Jesus that he wants all of his friends to hear about him and to get to know him. So who are all of his friends? Well, tax collectors only had friends that were other tax collectors. So he invites a whole bunch of tax collector buddies to come to his house. And again, if you read the text, we won't take the time for that this morning, but you, you find out that he threw a great banquet and he invited all these people to his big house and he has Jesus and his disciples there. And, and they throw this huge spread out on the table and they're all eating and they're drinking and Jesus is talking and the conversations are flowing. And all the religious leaders, and, and again, Luke tells us that the religious leaders were from Jerusalem, 
and in all the villages and towns in Galilee. So there's a whole bunch of religious leaders. Well, they're not at the party, naturally. But they're outside at the gate of the house. And so at one point, they call some of the disciples over and say, uh, you know, we've noticed that Jesus and you, his disciples, you're all eating with tax collectors and sinners. You know that that's not right. You know that, right? I mean, we separate ourselves from what the Hebrews used to call the soil, the dirty ones. We don't associate with them. Jesus, who knows everything, comes outside and says, hey, I, I, I heard you talking. Uh, I just want you to know I'm like a doctor. And a doctor doesn't spend time caring for well people. A doctor spends time healing the sick. That's what I'm here for. I've come to heal the sick people. And he goes back into the party. Well, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they're not done yet. They're still bothered by all of this. You see, they have territory to protect, right? They have rules and regulations that, that need to be honored and respected and certainly not left laying aside. So they call some of the disciples over a little bit later and they say, uh, you know, we've been watching you guys for a while and we notice that you don't fast. You're supposed to fast. You know that, right? I mean, you're supposed to fast. Well, the law of Moses does call for a fast one time, one fast per year. But the Pharisees, who are all about showing themselves to be super spiritual and very religious and very devout, they built fast upon fast upon fast to the point now where they fast and expect all the people to fast twice a week. Well, I mean, think about that. You go from once a year to twice a week? That's a lot of fasting all of a sudden. Not only that, but when they fast, they make sure everyone sees that they're fasting. Walking around, very humble, looking very hungry. Maybe have some ashes sprinkled around on their head and on their shoulders. So that people say, are you okay? Oh, I'm fasting. I'm fasting. Yes, yes. Part of my faith, I'm fasting. And they're saying, but you're not fasting. Which means you're probably not very religious. And Jesus, who hears and knows everything, comes out and says, you know, I want to tell you something. When the wedding feast happens and the bride and bridegroom are together, everybody comes around and there's this great celebration. Now, when they're gone, the celebration ends. But when the bridegroom is there, let the party take place. Jesus is referring to himself at that point as the bridegroom of, of the wedding that ultimately is going to bring together all the church and Jesus into one. This weekend I did a wedding for a delightful couple. After we had the wedding ceremony, we moved over into the reception hall. And I'm thinking about this particular set of experiences in the life of Jesus as we're sitting there and, and I'm, I'm noting that, what are we doing? We are eating and drinking, and dancing, and laughing, and celebrating. Because that's what you do at a wedding feast. Jesus said, there'll be time for fasting, but now is not the time for fasting. Well, 
the religious leaders are not happy. They're concerned that they're going to lose their grip if people start to follow Jesus. If they start to pay more attention to him than they do to the religious leaders. So Jesus now shifts gears. And he says this. He told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And some of you are going, okay, preacher. That's why I don't read the Bible. I have no idea what that means. And I can imagine, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of guys like Peter, right? A fisherman, kind of a rough and tumble guy going, I don't, what's that? I'm patching garments? I don't, I don't patch garments. I don't sew. What's he talking about? Well, let me just say a couple things about this. Because there's another one that's going to come right on the heels of it, which is going to be equally mystifying. First of all, if you've got a hole in your favorite dress or jeans or whatever you wear that's your favorite, and you say, I've got to patch that. No. You know, this breaks down so, so quickly in modern day. I have a granddaughter who goes and spends more for jeans that have holes in them than I do for jeans that are intact. <laughs> I have no idea why she does that. She said, oh, Papa, you don't get it. I, no, I don't. You pay extra for that? Really? I got a knife at home. I can just shred some of this stuff for you. If you take a good piece of clothing and cut a chunk out because you want to patch an old piece of clothing, that makes no sense at all because you've ruined the good piece of clothing and it's not going to match the old piece of clothing. It's going to like, like, look like you just sewed something on it to fill a tear. And it's going to look poor. That's what Jesus is getting at. It makes no sense because now both items are ruined. One, because you took a good piece of cloth and cut it up, and the other one because the patch doesn't fit, doesn't match, doesn't look good. But he doesn't spend a lot of time explaining that because he's got more to say. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, wine must be poured into new wineskins. <laughs> and we say, I get wine in a bottle. What, what's this all about? Well, let me show you a picture. Because I think the picture helps us to understand this a little bit more. Back in ancient times, they would carefully skin a goat and try to keep it as perfectly intact as possible. Then they would partially tan the skin of that goat and they would fill it with new wine. And they would allow that wine to ferment. Now, because the goat skin was partially tanned, it was very strong. But because it was also still fresh, it was pliable. It could expand as the wine ferments. And when the wine was ready to be drink, drunken, broke, when you're ready to pour it, uh, they would simply make an insertion and begin to pour the wine out. This is the picture that Jesus is using. 
And he's saying, you know full well that you can't take an old wineskin, which after you've used it, typically one time, it dries out, becomes brittle, it will burst as the fermentation occurs, and you will lose the wine and the wineskin. He said, you need a new wineskin for new wine. That's the picture that he is wanting to make. This elasticity allows for the wine to ferment and everyone is happy. So what's the point of these two parables? What's Jesus getting at? Well, you have to remember first of all who he's talking to, okay? Never forget who is the focus when you start to read things like this. Who's Jesus talking to? He is primarily talking to the religious leaders from Jerusalem and Galilee. Those who are intent upon maintaining their old traditions, their old structures, their old way of doing religion. That's who he's talking to. They were at best, at this point, it's relatively early in the, in the ministry of Jesus, at best, they were willing to try to bring him into the fold of their religion. And say, okay, he's got a couple of different ideas, but it'll probably be okay. We can kind of attach that to what we believe. As long as we don't have to get rid of things that are really important to us, like staying separate from tax collectors and sinners and not having anything to do with that group of people. As long as we still can, can keep the focus on our laws and on our fasts and on the things that really matter to our religion. They would patch his new teachings into their old religious traditions. <coughs> they would pour his new teaching into the old wineskin of their religious structures. And now we begin to understand what Jesus is getting at. The religious leader said, we'll add this to it. We'll make it fit. It'll work out okay but we'll keep everything that matters to us. And Jesus is saying, that's not at all how this is going to work. New wine demands new wineskins. This is like new, a new garment. Don't put something old on it with it. In these parables, Jesus is really just driving home the point that he is not simply patching Judaism. He's not trying to make Judaism better. He's not trying to make that religion better. He's saying, this is something radically new, something totally different. We go from law to grace. We go from tradition to relationship. And you can't blend the two. You go to the new. Anything other than that will be disastrous. You try to put it all together into one package, and it won't work. It can't work. Jesus knows that not everyone is going to buy into this. Not everyone's going to welcome his new teaching, his new way of doing things. So the last verse in this particular little episode goes like this. No, and no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. He said, I know. Some of you are going to say, I don't want the new stuff. I don't want what you're presenting, Jesus. I just like what we have. 
I like the way it's always been. I like the old traditions. I like the old laws. I like the fast. I like the separation. I like it that way. I don't want anything to do with what you have. And the religious leaders never changed. So much so that a few years after this, they stirred up the people down in Jerusalem and cried out for Jesus to be crucified because they wanted to keep what they had and not have what he has to offer. But all of this begs the question, what do these parables have to say to us? We get a little understanding of the context, we understand a little of the history, we might even understand a little bit of what those parables are now trying to communicate. But the bigger question in there so, is the so what? That's a nice history lesson, Bob, but so what? Anything for me in all of this? Well, you know, we all have, we all have stories that we've written for our lives. At some point, we've, we've kind of imagined what it's going to be like. And, and most stories have a similar line. We fully expect that at some point we will get married. We will have children. We will buy a house. We expect that we'll have a successful career. That maybe we'll be successful enough that we can actually get a cottage up north and we can zoom Keystone in from there in the summertime. To those of you up north. We expect that we'll someday have grandkids and, and that we'll have retirement. And maybe we'll get to do some traveling along the way and then, and then we'll live comfortably and happily and healthily for the rest of our lives. That's kind of the storyline that we write for ourselves. And our storyline never, never says, and I fully expect that at some point uh, my marriage will blow up and I'll be divorced. I never expect that uh, my my spouse and I will struggle with infertility and not be able to have children. We never write into our storyline that at 16, my son is going to start experimenting with drugs and he will struggle with addictions for the next 15 years before he commits suicide. We never write into our storyline that uh, after 20 years of my job, I'm gonna get fired and I will struggle to find a job for the next three years and we will lose our house in the process. We never write stuff like that into our storyline. We write all good things. Our expectations, our dreams, our hopes are always for good things. It's just that sometimes other things happen and our storyline gets rewritten some. But you know, when we write that storyline and then, and then we come to begin a relationship with Jesus, it's kind of like, I now have the golden ticket. I have Jesus and his job is to make sure all of my hopes and dreams and expectations come true. Because he promised that I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. So therefore, Jesus, your job is to make my dreams, my life, all that I'd hoped it would be. And we patch him into our story. We pour him into the skin of our dreams, our hopes, our life story. And we fully expect 
that he will make it all happen. That he will do exactly what we want him to do. But that's not how it works. That's never what Jesus promises us. You see, to follow Jesus is more than simply adding him to our story. To follow Jesus is, is to begin a new story. And it's not the story we write now. It's the story he will write for us and with us. We don't invite Jesus into our life so that he can step into our story. We invite him into our lives so that we can step into his story, which brings us to our big idea for today. Following Jesus means living out his story, not patching him into my story. To follow Jesus is to live out his story and not patch him into my story. Do so you remember Levi, that tax collector back at the beginning of all of this? What did he do when he met Jesus? Remember those three things? He got up, he left everything, and he followed him. Jesus reordered Levi's priorities. He rewrote Levi's life. He goes from being a tax collector to being a changed man. In fact, there's a guy who is one of Jesus' disciples. His name is Matthew. He actually wrote one of, the, one of the Gospels, one of the stories of Jesus' life and ministry. It's the first of the four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know who Matthew is? Matthew's Levi. Jesus gave him a new name because he gave him a new life. Jesus rewrote his story. He was no longer the despised tax collector. He becomes a faithful disciple who serves with and then serves after Jesus. You don't patch Jesus into your life, into your story. You step into his story for you and you follow in the storyline that he writes for you. Jesus is still in the business of changing lives. To follow Jesus is not a way of guaranteeing that all of your hopes and dreams will come true. Instead, when you follow Jesus, you're inviting him to change you into what he wants you to be. Finding Jesus, it's about being forgiven and given a new start. And if you haven't done that, I invite you to do that, to find Jesus and have a new, fresh beginning at life as a forgiven follower of his. And then to follow him means a lifelong journey for however long that life is going to be that takes you farther and deeper into an adventure of faith with him as he writes that story for you and makes you into what he wants you to be and helps you to become all that he desires you to be. Those two parables, patches and wineskins, just remind us that in reality to follow Jesus is to begin all over in a new and fresh way. That's what kept us at Keystone. That's why we're still here five years later because we believe that the most important thing that we can help people do is find and follow Jesus.
Join me, please, as I close our time in prayer. Oh, Father, how good it is to be reminded that we don't have to be clean, perfect, uh, before we can come to Jesus. We look at Levi and, and we find that his life is a mess. And yet Jesus welcomed him in. He just didn't leave him a mess. He made him into a totally new person. And thank you that you're still doing that with us, making us new, clean, forgiven, and helping us to grow in this new vital relationship with Jesus. So that we can become not who we want to be, but who you want us to be. So Father, I pray for all of us, wherever we are in this journey, I pray that we will take our next step of faith and that we will find and follow Jesus wholeheartedly, passionately, with every fiber of our being so that we might become the men and women that he desires us to be. We thank you today on this Memorial Day weekend for men and women who have willingly fought, served, and some died in defense of our country and the principles of our country. And we, we do pray for the safety of our military men and women, and, and we pray for those uh, families who today are reminded again that uh, a husband, a father, a, a, a wife, a spouse, a, a parent is not present because they have served and died in service. Bless them and encourage them today. But most of all, we thank you for Jesus who died for us. And we ask that you will help us as we walk from this place to walk hand in hand with him. And we pray this in his name, the one who loved us, gave himself for us, and now lives with us. Jesus. By myself sometimes. And all God's people said, space. Amen. Yeah, no, yeah, no, Thank you. It hurts when I push your love away. I hate myself.